Hi there. If you're just discovering Jewelry Navigator podcast, wanted to introduce myself. My name is Brenna Pakes, and I'm a graduate gemologist of the Gemological Institute of America. I have a degree in geology, and once I finished with that, I just really had a passion for learning more about gemstones. So I've worked mostly with the retail sector, which has given me some great insight into how best to help and assist and inform consumers like you who want to know more about what you're looking for and what you already have. I have a lot of fun sharing stories and behind the scene insight from all kinds of people within the jewelry industry from gemologists to jewelry designers to gemstone faceters. It's a world that most people are really not that familiar with, but it truly is fascinating. And I thank you so much for tuning in and want to invite you to subscribe if you already haven't. Thank you so much for joining me and welcome aboard. Um, but what really catapulted my um my journey into becoming educated as a, a proper gemologist was the um, acquisition of a diamond tennis bracelet that um, I found in a secondhand store. And um, I didn't know it was diamond until I got it home. I had a diamond tester even before I became a gemologist because I always loved gems, as I said. And I had a diamond tester and I bought the uh, bracelet. I brought it home. I started testing it and it tested diamond. I um, I took the uh, bracelet to a, a, an appraiser on Jewelers Row in Philadelphia. That is my guest, Adrian Sanogo, GIA graduate gemologist. I'm thrilled to welcome her on what is the 100th episode of Jewelry Navigator podcast. It has been such a wonderful and joyful journey. I'm so happy and grateful for you joining me. Thank you for those who have been following me from the beginning. And for those who are just discovering Jewelry Navigator podcast, welcome. Adrienne is an accomplished graduate gemologist with an intriguing story. And we found that we have so much in common that I felt like inviting her on the podcast just made sense because I love sharing my passion of gemology and jewelry with anyone willing to listen. And it kind of trickles down to the next generation. We always want to pass on our passions and information for future generations. She and I have so much in common when we agree on that platform. So I thoroughly enjoyed visiting with Adrienne and her story is truly a treat. And you're certainly in for a treat between this episode and the upcoming episode where we discuss in depth emeralds, which is the birthstone for May, where in the beginning of May 2023, and there's actually some very intriguing identifying features that we gemologists look for when it comes to identifying emeralds. So I want to welcome you to the 100th episode of Jewelry Navigator podcast. Thank you so much for joining me and welcome aboard. You and I visited a little bit, but 
tell us a little bit about your story and what inspired you to become a gemologist. And one thing that you and I really agree upon and are passionate about is educating consumers, just like what we're talking about today. Tell us a little bit about what inspired you to become a gemologist and how you got started. Thank you, Brenna. Um, and I want to thank you again for inviting me to um, co-host with you on your podcast on educating consumers about gems and jewelry. Yes. My name is Adrienne Sonigo. I am a GIA graduate gemologist, and I was um, inspired to become a gemologist from taking um, some courses on GIA's uh, website, Distance Education Courses. Um, I always loved uh, gems and minerals as a child. I used to collect them. We live near a park in Phil I live in Philadelphia. We live near, like right on the edge. When I say the edge, like there's a giant park um, in Philadelphia called Fairmount Park. And we live like on the edge of it. And I used to collect rocks and, you know, you, a lot of um, houses in Philadelphia are made uh, from um, limestone from local quarries. So I was always like digging into like <laughs> the side of the house and that kind of thing. Plus, uh, my family is from Virginia. We lived on top of a mountain, so there were lots of rocks around there. And that's something I've been fascinated with since I was a child. Um, but what really catapulted my, um, my journey into becoming educated as a, a proper gemologist was the um, acquisition of a diamond tennis bracelet that um, I found in a secondhand store and... Um, I didn't know it was diamond until I got it home. I had a diamond tester even before I became a gemologist because I always loved gems, as I said. And I had a diamond tester and I bought the uh, bracelet. I brought it home. I started testing it and it tested diamond. And everybody around me, all of my friends and family told me, oh, that's not real. Um, how could it be a diamond bracelet at a um, thrift store? Like you're crazy. Um, and so I, um, I took the, uh, bracelet to a, uh, an appraiser on Jewelers Row in Philadelphia, and I didn't give him any of this story, um, cause I actually had found something before that, but anyway, um, I didn't give him the story of it. And, um, I just told, you know, told him I wanted an appraisal and he appraised it. It didn't have any hallmarks on it. That was the other thing. Um, and we could talk about jewelry forensics at another time, but jewelry mm -hmm. forensics played a big part in why I bought the bracelet. So anyway, he told me that the bracelet was um, 10 carats total weight, um, set in 18 karat gold. And the diamonds um, were G color, GH color, which is phenomenal, and VVS1. It appraised for $21,000 and I paid $89 in tax for it. Oh my gosh. Right. So after that, in my mind, I'm like, oh, I know everything. Like I know <laughs> everything about there. There is to know about gems. And my son was with me when I found the bracelet. So he said to me, let's, let's go to the mall and see what, like, let's see what those bracelets cost at a regular jewelry store. So we did, we went to Zales and cause that was the closest mall. And, um, the salesperson had her name badge on and after her name, she had credentials that said GIA GG. Now I knew what GIA was because I knew about reports, diamond, um, gemstone reports. I, I knew about that forever, but I had no idea GIA had an educational institution. So I, 
I went online and I looked it up and I saw that they were offering distance courses and they were at a, a price point that I could afford. So I said, oh, well, let me take the one on Diamond because I already know everything. I know everything there is to know about Diamond. <laughs> In my mind, this is what I'm thinking to myself. And um, I was I was blown away by the offerings. Um, that's how I got into it. I was only going to take that one course, but I got hooked because the more I learned, the more I wanted to learn. And eventually um, I got to the point where it was becoming a bit expensive to keep pursuing it. I had no interest in, well, I had no desire to pursue the GG because I didn't think it was something that was attainable to me because of the cost. But I um, I joined WJA and they happened to be having a new scholarship and I applied for it and I won it. And so that enabled me to continue my studies, set up my lab with the basic um, equipment to take GEM, uh, GEM ID. And that's how I was able to pay for it along with Marine Corps scholarship um, funds as well, because my dad was a Marine. And even though I'm like a hundred years old, they still honored my dad's service. You know, he served in Vietnam. That was a long time ago, but they were great. They still honored his service and they paid for, um, paid toward three, three or four classes, I think it was. So between that and WJA, and I did win a scholarship from GIA as well. I was able to complete my courses. And that's how I got into gemology because of a diamond bracelet. It's a long story. No, it's a great story. It's an awesome story because what better way to get more curious about gemstones and jewelry than not only jewelry you already have, but jewelry that you find. Oh my gosh, what a treasure. Yeah. That is so cool. So one thing I forgot to mention, I don't know how I forgot this part. Uh, in 2017, I was diagnosed with cancer. Oh. And um, around that time that I found the bracelet, I had had treatment. They discovered I had treatment. And then I had uh, the treatment. And then a year after that, when I went back for my follow-up, they found tumors. So the following oh. year, I had to have a hysterectomy. So after that, you know, I, I kind of said to myself, you have a second chance at life. Like, what are you going to do with it? And so that was also a deciding factor. I'm like, why don't I do something that I've always wanted to do? So it kind of all came together, yeah. um, you know, finding that bracelet, thinking about what I wanted to do with the next chapter in my life. Um, so all of those things were factors in becoming a gemologist. And it was hard because um, during the time, um, that I was studying, I did distance learning, as I mentioned to you, um, I was getting treatments, I had the surgery, I wasn't feeling well, as you know, when you're a gemologist, your health impacts how you see things, how you process it, um, especially for gemologists, because of the way we have to process color. Mm -hmm. And um, I wasn't doing well, honestly. And even my professors at one point were like, are you okay? Because I was making like, mistakes I shouldn't have been making at that point in my studies. And I never told them what was going on because one, it was none of their business, but two, I didn't want any special treatment. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, getting that diploma was what kept me going. Like I had something to look forward to in my life and I wanted to get it in case something happened to me. I, Cause you don't know, can't, I mean, you, you just don't know. Right. And it was something, so it kept me going. It was a big part of my recovery. So it was, um, I don't know how I forgot that part to add that part. 
credit. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, it's but okay. yeah, I, uh, it's not that I forgot about it, but I, uh, I'm like, I, I like to focus on the positive. And exactly. A- and you've moved, you've moved through that and beyond it. And it was, that's an incredible, remarkable accomplishment that you, that you did not only getting through it when you were ill, but probably as a mom with kids still at home and having to be present for them. Um, We all know how life gets super busy with a family and making the time to do your studies and get those, those um, lessons completed and corresponding with your teachers and professors. It's a lot of work. So it's such a wonderful accomplishment to celebrate and you're doing it in such a beautiful way because you're, I, I see, I see you bouncing from event to event and featured in all these great publications and you are definitely hustling and, and, and sharing your very best with, with the consumer world and, you know, your, your peers and colleagues too, because we love to see what you're doing and it, it just, you know, spurs on more curiosity and, and joy of gemology to be able to share it with so many other people. So thanks for sharing so much of your background. I really enjoyed hearing about that. And I, I always like to hope that our conversations and conversations I have with other guests and solo episodes that I have, I always hope that it inspires somebody whether it's them themselves or they can see their child or their grandchild, like, oh my gosh, I know Laura really loves rock. She's always digging. You know, I should tell her about this because just like you, there are a lot of people who don't know that this career path exists. Yes. Yes. That is one of the things that I also enjoy doing as a gemologist. Um, Quite frankly, I thought I was going to be behind a microscope for 12 hours a day, looking at piles of gems and, and identifying them. That's mm-hmm. what I thought I was going to be doing as a gemologist. And I, I can't say I'm not disappointed that I'm not doing that, but I actually enjoy what I am doing, which is sharing my knowledge and expertise with the world. So whether that's a consumer or someone such as yourself, you know, sharing my passion and exchanging knowledge with someone such as yourself, I enjoy that because I'm going to learn from you and I hope that you learn from me. Mm-hmm. So I think I have a better job at what I'm doing, which is um, I feel very strongly about educating the public and protecting the consumer. And the consumer is not just re- people in retail stores and, and shoppers. The consumer could be someone such as yourself. The consumer could be someone beha- behind the counter at a retail establishment. It could be a buyer. It could be a minor who doesn't have a background in gemology. It could be anyone. A consumer is someone who's consuming something, right? right? So it doesn't have to just be someone shopping. So I feel very protective. I feel like that is my job as a gemologist to educate the people who need the education about gems and jewelry. Yes. So I take that um, very seriously. And whatever outlet that I am afforded or invited to, to do that, I enjoy it. I especially thank you for bringing me onto your podcast because it's another um, venue where I get to teach people and share my passion and expertise about gems and jewelry. So it's so important um, to be able to do this and to tell kids to get, because I wish, I try to be the person I wished I had met when I was like seven or eight years old, when I first started 
rocks. So when I get in front of a group of kids, whether they are middle school kids or high school kids, I, I am that person that I wished was in front of me. So I try to remember like what would I have felt like if I had met someone such as myself at that age? Of course, it would have changed the trajectory of where I went in my journey in life, but I can't go back in time. All I can do is now, like you said, let people know this is a viable career path. And even people my age who may want to transition or switch gears or try something different, it can be done. I mean, I did it under really, when you think of very challenging circumstances, I'll put it that way. Um, my daughter, my youngest daughter who graduates next in the next two weeks, she was, um, it was college admission season for her. Oh, so wow. you know, And it was during the time where they had all of those college scan, that college scandal was going on. So mm -hmm. that was challenging. Um, just the whole thing. So if I could do it, the whole point is if I could do it under those circumstances, then you can do it. And not just being a gemologist, whatever you want to do in life, if you want to switch gears. Mm -hmm. Yes. Get done. You know, yeah. um, I treated it like it was a like it was an appointment I made with myself every day. I didn't even take a day off to, when I was doing it. Every day I set aside a certain amount of time. Yes. Yeah. The, that's great advice for just like you said, anybody who wants to change gears, but I personally yeah. am biased towards the gemology and jewelry careers, <laughs> just like you are. Yeah. Um, yeah, because... but it can be applied to anything. Like yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, I had a conversation with somebody today, in fact, about kind of the dying breed of the jewelry repair people, the jewelry repair person. Yes. Especially when it comes to watches and, you know, pocket watches and things like that. But I feel like there might be a little bit of a resurgence of that return because um I I I need to do some research and find out where they're going, where they're learning to do the watch and repair service. But um I feel like just you know, like we're talking about, people need to know about it to know about it. So right. yeah. yes. Yeah. I can help you with that. Um, off, you know, off camera. I do know of at least two places, no, three places where they're teaching horology. Yeah. And the bench jewelry um industry is suffering somewhat right now. Everybody's feeling that pinch. And there are um, different uh companies and organizations that are trying to revitalize that. And I'm yes. trying to do that also by visiting classrooms. And I don't just talk about gemology when I go out to the classrooms. I talk about the other careers in the industry. Mm -hmm. I work sometimes with Jewelers of America to talk about that. So yeah, you're right. But I think like I did a whole chart like for kids, like if you like to tinker around with things and you're good with your hands, you might be a good gem um, horologist or you might be a good bench jeweler. If you like color, color theory, and you know science and and chemistry then you might be a good gemologist like i did that kind of chart and um you know it gets kids thinking you know every college is not for everyone like college is great but it's not for everyone um there is actually a four year um college gemology course that's going on at the university of arizona oh, i didn't know that yeah i just that's found true. that out myself huh so um shelly sargent is is a help uh, create that the, um, the curator for somewhere over the rainbow. So there's, um, you know, it's, 
And the thing also with the lab created diamonds, and there, there's always been, not always, but lab created um, emeralds and rubies and, and sapphires have been around for a while as well. Um, lab created diamonds have been out since the 50s. However, with the research, with the onslaught of, of lab created diamonds, I feel like there's a need for more gemologists. Mm -hmm. Because the lab grown diamonds aren't going anywhere. They're being produced so so quickly. Soon, it's going to be so many of them on the market that you're going to have to have an expert in-house to be able to tell the difference. I so, know. I know. Yeah. That's a whole other can of worms. Oh, that's but... another top. Yeah, that's another podcast that we can, we could probably have 10 of those. I know. And I, I, I feel for everybody involved because- I feel like we kind of keep it a secret from the consumers who are purchasing jewelry or they want a more affordable option for a diamond. It's a perfect answer solution for that. But at the same time, there's the conundrum of the jeweler who someone comes in off the street with the, you know, the worst intentions and they can't tell that it's a lab grown diamond. They're selling it as a natural and they don't have the equipment to test it, or the inscription on the girdle has been removed. Uh, there's just, there's a lot of stuff going on that needs to be fixed. And I hope that, I hope that we can come up with some testing equipment that is easy to access and more affordable for the, a lot of the independent jewelers who can't afford like the big equipment, you know? That, that's the word, the affordable part. Yeah. it's yeah. not affordable. Even the let the diamond tester that I was talking about earlier, I have a presidium uh -huh. um, that differentiates. So it, it, it's looking for moissanite, you know, it mm -hmm. has to tell moissanite from natural diamond is CZ, but it was invented before this whole lab grown um, explosion. Oh. So I could have very well had lab grown diamonds that were testing as natural. Mm hmm but I did have it looked at by an appraiser, you know, who was also a gemologist. And so, and, and since then I have tested it with um, advanced equipment, but that's like, that's a whole other, you know. Yeah, it is. It's, it is scary. It's very scary. It is. And I'm just going to insert this, any jeweler, any, any representative of retail jewelry, if they're not concerned about that, I would tell consumers to leave, go find another jeweler. Yes, I agree with you on that. I yeah. agree with you because the value, it didn't, the value um, margin used to not be that great. I think it was like 20% less. Now there's a bigger gap between lab grown and natural because the lab, lab grown prices have plunged mm -hmm. in the last, I'm going to say nine to 10 months. So now there's a bigger um, price difference between lab grown and natural. Right. So, you know, but, you know, if that's not your ethos to have a lab grown or to have a natural, because it could be the other way around. I, I know um, some people don't want a natural diamond for whatever the reason may be. And if you sell, if you got it mixed up and you sell them a natural diamond instead of the lab grown, they're upset about it. Right. So, you know, because they're like, oh, where did it come from? You know, that whole story about 
blood diamonds. And so that's a whole other topic that we don't need to get into right now. But, you know, they're they're concerned about that so much. So they're offended if they have a natural diamond because they wanted a lab grown. So it can go both ways, it you know. Can. That's true. Well, I hadn't really thought of that, but you're right. Yeah, I told yeah. you, you know, yes, some people are very anti-natural. Some people are very anti-lab grown. And then, and then you can switch it around and, you know, you don't know which one you're going to get. And people can be upset for either reason. And you have to respect that, you know? Right. Right. As I do appraisals, I wondered, what is this meaning for the price of natural diamonds? Is it going to just keep on going up and continue to hold its value because the lab grown are so um, abundant and because the supply is flooded, the value you know, the value balance is out of balance. Uh So then that means that the natural dimes, especially fine, large, fine quality, large stones. What, what have you heard or what do you see happening in the market with the price of natural diamonds? So what I've heard from, um, I speak with a lot of, as you know, dealers and retailers and the like, Melly diamonds. Oh, um, because of the pandemic and the supply chain issues, a lot of Indian, a lot of Indian um, cut stones, which most diamonds are cut in India now, um, suffered. That supply chain suffered because a lot of people passed away, unfortunately, due to COVID. So mm-hmm. the supply chain for for Melly diamonds was very limited, um, and then people. The people who wanted natural diamonds weren't able to get as many of them as they wanted. They could get the uh, the lab grown, mm. but they really couldn't get the natural. So the price increased there. Um, in terms okay. of um, larger, I want to say larger than a carat, you know, of uh, natural diamonds. Um, the demand for that I heard had gone down, um, but I think with the flooding of the lab grown diamonds on the market, we're going to see a, uh, an upward trend very soon because quite frankly, lab grown diamonds are not rare. They're not, they have really no value. The value was in when, when, whenever you have any new product on the market, I don't care if it was VCRs and a lot of people can relate to this VCRs. I'm going to say VCRs, microwaves and plasma TVs. I'll use that as an example. When they first came out, they were expensive. In fact, most people couldn't afford them. The average person could not afford them. Um, as the uh, the patents and the R&D um, and all of those things, um, the money was repaid back to those sources, um, the prices started to come down because you you do have to pay for research and development. You do have to pay for the, you know, the patent, all of that stuff has a price to it. And that's why things start off at a high price. Then as you start selling it and you start making your money back, the prices plunge. This is the same thing with um, lab-grown diamonds to create those, if you ever seen a lab-grown diamond factory, it's not cheap. That's where the money, that's where the value was in lab-grown diamonds. It wasn't really the material. It was building the infrastructure to be able to, to create them like cookies. They're like cookies in a factory. Right. They're on a, an assembly line almost. So you can make a, a lab-grown diamond. I think two weeks now you can make one. Oh, so wow. 
that's why the prices are falling because the machinery is up. It's been paid for. The land has been paid for. You know, all of that's been paid for now. So now it's a cheaper product. Okay. So interesting. Natural diamonds will start to reclaim their space um, with prices. And you may even see an increase somewhat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised because of the the Rarity. contrast in value, right? Exactly. So the the value in lab grown was really setting it up to produce it, like any mm-hmm. other product. Right, right. But like we were talking about in defense of the consumer who is they're committed to the concept and the reason why they're choosing a lab-grown diamond. I hear a lot of jewelers and um, you know natural diamond pundits talk about, yeah, but the value of of a lab-grown diamond is not going to hold its value. You can't resell it. Well, who says someone's going to want to resell their first original diamond that was a lab-grown diamond? That was their choice. I think that that argument is kind of silly because people know what they're buying. And if I I guess I can understand if you need to explain it to a young man who is just starting out and he will want to eventually trade up his, his diamond, then you have a viable argument. Yeah. But when you're saying that everybody is going to want to trade in their diamond, I'm never trading in my diamond, you know? It has a sentimental value. Yes. 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 There's a sentimentality too. So jewelry has a very strong tie to sentimentality. So I understand your point. That's a very valid point. As long as that's explained to the consumer when they are obtaining the item. Now, the other thing that people, I think, forget about when they're talking about lab-grown diamonds and natural diamonds is the setting. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the setting has a value. If you've had it set, usually the lab-grown diamonds have been set in precious metals, platinum, and and some type of gold. Very seldom do I see them set in sterling, although natural diamonds have been set in sterling. I haven't seen the lab-grown in sterling yet. Oh, okay. Yet, but it's coming. Right. So um, on a large scale, I've seen it, but not on a large scale um, for engagement rings in particular. But the setting that you have your lab grown diamond and still has value. And, and, and if you're scrapping it, I'm just using this as an example, it's all going to depend on what the value of gold or platinum is at that moment. Mm-hmm. It's not lost when you're, you know, you're trading up the center stone, the lab grown stone that you want to trade in. What are you trading it in for another lab grown stone, like a bigger one? Like if that's what you're doing, I suggest people have something in writing, a written statement saying that if I want to trade this one carat lab grown for a two carat lab grown, I can at least get the value that I paid for, pay for towards something bigger. Yeah. As long as, and, and a lot of stores have that with, I know with natural diamonds, I don't know what they're doing with lab, but I know with natural, like for instance, Tiffany and company, um, I don't know if they still have it, but they used to have a policy if you pay $10,000 for this diamond ring and you want to buy one that's 21,000. Perfect. We'll give you 10 toward the 21,000. You owe right. us 11,000. So, if you can do that with a lab grown diamond, great. But 
you know, and that goes for natural. It goes for both, right? Because not every store is doing that with a natural diamond either. Right. So as long as these things are explained to the consumer, it's fine. But, you know, what you paid for a lab-grown diamond last year is not what you're paying for it this year. Whereas with diamonds, it's not true with diamonds. You mean with natural diamonds? Diamonds, yes. With natural diamonds. You're probably um, paying more for the natural diamond this year than you did last year, but the opposite is true for the lab-grown diamond. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In terms of, I'm going to say what the wholesale cost is because I don't know what the retailer is selling it for. They might just be making a bigger margin at this point. Right. right. I don't know. Like, I, it's none of my business. It's not. I don't think that's right, but I don't know what the retailers are doing at this point. Um, but this is why if you're making any big ticket purchase, whether it be a car or a diamond or a home, you got to do your research and you have to have trusted sources. Like the internet is not a trusted source on everything. If you're going to use the internet, you should go to a trusted source um, like GIA, um, Jewelers of America, uh, Jewelers Vigilance Committee, like those types of, of places where the information is reliable. Yes. Yeah. Those are great. That's a great tip because anybody could go on to a, um, an online store that doesn't have a storefront and they, they, they will have a blogs and lots of information, but that's really solid advice that you just gave. They are basically neutral parties. They are not going to be pushing one side or the other. You can trust their information. It's not going to be pushing you in a direction to purchase, you know, something that may not be exactly what you wanted. So that's really good advice. Yeah. It's usually people who aren't selling anything that are going to give you objective information. Like I tell people all the time, I don't sell jewelry. I don't sell gems. I give, um, expert advice. I give tips. Um, but I don't push you in either direction. I give you information. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you make your own decision. What I think about personally about any of these topics is not something I usually discuss publicly because I'm here for the facts. Yes. And give you the facts and you make your own. You should be making your own decision. Right. I'm doing in my personal life is what I'm doing in my personal life. And it's going to be based on a lot of different things. But I'm giving you information. That's the only I just want to be objective when I give out my information. Nope. Yep. I completely agree. Mm-hmm. I'm actually going to be leaving you hanging here just a little bit. In just a couple of minutes, I'll give you a sneak peek to our follow-up conversation where we talk more about emeralds, which is the birthstone for May, and some really more interesting conversations about emeralds. Not every gemstone can be worn as rigorously as, say, a diamond engagement ring. Diamond is... 10 on the hardness scale, which is an important factor to consider when you're going to be wearing, especially jewelry or gemstones set in rings, because they do get the brunt of a lot of wear and tear. We're always moving our hands around. And typically a lot of people, especially women, we don't take our engagement rings off very often. So it will introduce you to those factors on how to choose gemstones wisely. But I wanted to touch base on a couple of points that Adrienne and I talked about, most of which is about the lab-grown diamonds. 
Once they became commercially available, it really took the industry by storm. And she and I, and anybody else working in the industry, whether you're a retailer or wholesaler, or someone just kind of sitting on the sidelines in some capacity of the industry, we've all watched how quickly the value comparison between lab-grown diamonds and natural diamonds have grown apart very rapidly. And Adrian touched on a really interesting point, but something that is important to consider when you're educating yourself about lab-grown diamonds versus natural diamonds. Lab-grown diamonds are not rare. There are a lot of companies manufacturing them. They can be grown in relatively short time. Two weeks, I think, is is um, is the fastest, and I <laughs> they're always making advancements, so it could be even faster. So I don't ever want to discourage someone from choosing one choice over another, but it's really important to be educated, to make an educated decision and choice. And if you're making a choice because you do not want a natural or what we call earth mine diamond, then it's the perfect choice for you. But understanding that the value is not going to be the same as when you purchase it to when you might want to trade it in, that's where the important factor comes in. It's most important to be informed on those aspects. So with that, I'm going to leave you with a sneak peek for the next episode of Jewelry Navigator Podcast, where Adrian and I delve into the world of emeralds. Maybe talk about some of the interesting inclusions that you've come across with emeralds that were able to help you identify them as natural emeralds. And it's really cool to see if you're a geek like like myself and Brenna, <laughs> you see these kinds of things, you're like, oh my God, because it's, oh my, it's like a miracle that these conditions existed altogether in the first place. But then it's a miniature. It's, it's it's so small on such a small scale that you need a microscope to see it to begin with. Right. Um, that's how small it is. And that this existed and then a, a crystal was able to form with all of these attributes and become an emerald um, and survive. So until next time, thanks a lot and we'll see you in the next episode.